This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week TV podcast. Special guest, as always, Andrew Mercado. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Extra special guest today, David Knox, returning to the Media Week podcast. Hi, David. Extra special hello. <laughs> Good to have you back with us. Of course, we're recording this on Zoom and hopefully there won't be too much background noise from uh, the builders opposite where I am today. So, look, it's um, been a pretty amazing week at Network 10. I thought we maybe should start there, um, in particular with their news brand. I'm not sure what they're up to, but they... Um, they uh, David, I'll start with you. If they confirm they're going to be running the same 5 o'clock news board into Sydney and Brisbane and then the same news board into Melbourne and Adelaide. So, look, it's been very difficult to get a straight answer. Um, <clears throat> they've said that Sandra Sully will be presenting the bulletin in Brisbane and Perth. Jennifer Kite will present it in Adelaide as well as Melbourne where she is. Um, they uh, obviously, you know, we have time zone challenges, right? A number of time zones, um, particularly involving uh, uh, daylight saving as well. So it's obviously impossible for, let's say, for example, for Jennifer Kite to be live on air in Melbourne and then do a new, a, another bulletin, a separate bulletin in Adelaide, which is 30 minutes later. Same problem goes again when Sandra Sully would have to be doing a Brisbane bulletin in uh, uh, Daylight Saving. So that either means something is pre-recorded or it either means they are delaying bulletins into some of those states. I have asked them about this. Um, uh, the only answer I've received really is that their live will still be a part of the bulletins. Um, be a part, but does that I give don't them know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, I've got to remember not to talk over you. Um, I don't know whether that means um, we're talking about live news updates, whether we're talking about a sporting segment that might be live or a live cross of some sort or a live weather, but the fact that I really didn't get a, a, a clear answer on that suggests to me that either they're still working it out or that either these are going to be delayed into some... Um, States. Well, surely they've worked it out by now. They just don't want to tell you, David. Um, you can't be telling me they've sacked all these people and they don't know what they're doing. I mean, at the moment, it looks to me like the news is being split up according to football codes. So theoretically, Sydney and Brisbane could be watching news with NRL in it because Melbourne and Adelaide would be more interested in AFL. Is it along football lines? Well, I thought it would be a lot. I thought that would have been the logical way to go, Andrew, that you would have the Brisbane, you would, sorry, you would have the Perth bulletin coming out of Melbourne, which would keep, in theory, AFL at the top of the bulletin as required. I cannot imagine how many Perth people will welcome sitting down to watch a bulletin coming out of Sydney with NRL at the top of the bulletin. I think that's going to be a problem. However, I'm wondering whether Narelda Jacobs could be a key to this. Well, I thought that's what was happening. I thought that Narelda Jacobs, who is a former Perth newsreader, is reading a Perth bulletin but based out of Sydney. She stays in Sydney and continues to be a guest host on Studio 10. That was my understanding. Then Sandra Sully does Brisbane and Sydney, NRL. Jennifer Kite does Melbourne and Adelaide, AFL. That's the way I understood it. Uh, I think my understanding is that Narelda has been doing a, a weekend bulletin out of Sydney. James, do you know that? That's correct, yeah, just on weekends. Yeah. So, therefore, maybe they're going to use that as the model and shift her to um, doing a weeknight bulletin out of Sydney, that would make sense. And maybe that's why the Perth bulletin will be coming out of Sydney. But it's not what they've said. And, you know, they don't have to tell me, but they certainly have to tell their staff and they have to tell their audience. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, we don't know everything yet, so you don't want to jump to conclusions, but it would seem in a way that they're giving up on news. You know, I mean, because we thought when um, Viacom CBS came in, 
I mean, CBS is a massive news brand, stands for a lot in the US. We thought, well, wacko, they might invest in news here to try and be a bit more competitive with Seven and Nine. Um, I don't think they ever really tried that. But now they just seem to be backing off, backing away. And I guess, I mean, you might know this more than me, David, but presumably in the licence conditions, there's certain things you have to provide as part of your TV licence. I had a quick look today, but I couldn't sort of work out what it was. Uh, well, to go to your point about backing off news, you know, I spoke to Mel Walden this week to get his take on, you know, the experience of a network that seemingly changes, particularly in the news department, a lot. It always seems to be the first to go at 10 for mm. some reason. You know, they build up the the bulletins, hire people, say they're committed to news, and then <laughs> how long does that last before it all goes? And then, then we come back and we do it all over again. We build it up again. It's It's... I mean, I sound like I'm laughing about it, but only because it's a, it's a bit of exasperation. Um, Andrew, you were going to say something on the licensing? Well, yeah, I, th I think they do have a requirement as part of their licensing to provide a certain amount of uh, news. They, their broadcast licence also requires them to do a certain amount of stuff for the community, which, is, which then flows on to children's show quotas and all that sort of stuff. They weren't just given these licences back in the day to do whatever they want. It came attached with these conditions that they would do certain things. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was. And some of that requirement will be for local news. Yeah. And I'm not sure if a national bulletin with local items would would suffice. Well, I guess 10 will tell you that their Perth-centric news bulletin uh, read by Narelda Jacobs will be a Western Australian news broadcast. The only difference is that it's going to be recorded and beamed out of Sydney using their facilities. They're, they, they're going to still have reporters on the ground yep. in Perth filing stories. But the story... So they'll say, oh, no, we're just doing this, like, to consolidate resources, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, as viewers in Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth will know, they are losing their local news service and I can't imagine um, that people who've been watching Channel 10 News in Brisbane are going to be happy that they're sharing it with Sydney. At least they know who Sandra Sully is because she's had a national profile on 10 for a long, long time. But, you know, are Adelaide people going to say, yeah, great, throw us in with the same bulletin as Melbourne? It'll be fascinating to see how they're going to do this. But I would suggest to you, well, it sounds to me like they're doing one bulletin at 5pm for Victoria and, and South Australia, read by Jennifer Kite, going out live from 5 to 6 o'clock, picking up local stories from both places. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, they've previously done, you know, I was talking with Mel Walden about how George Tanikian had done the Adelaide Bulletin out of Melbourne for pretty much a decade, if, if, if not more. Um, but, that, but that was an Adelaide-specific assembled and presented bulletin. So it came out of Melbourne, but it wasn't, you know, it was made for the Adelaide audience. I, I wonder how much of this is also looking to what Nine has done with their regional news bulletins, where they have a presenter who does, you know, like, for instance, Joe Hall does about three regional bulletins for Victoria on Nine. She records um, the opening segment, which has local news, and then it feeds in from a variety of stories that, you know, are obviously coming from the Melbourne team. Right, right. See, it's interesting because I, I sit in regional New South Wales and I see when news updates. So when you're watching the news and when you're watching 10 that night, which is coming to you via win, what will happen is suddenly it's the win news update, your regional news. And it's this girl and she's in Tasmania. And that is the laziest, most dreadful news updates. It's basically someone sits in Tasmania and looks at what's happening in the local news in the Newcastle Hunter Valley and just writes up some stuff. And this Tasmanian news reader 
reads it out and it's really lazy and dreadful and not good. I'd like to think that 10 are going to be better than that. Is that all you get? So there's no dedicated win Newcastle or Hunter Morton? Yes, there is. What they do is they put a thing together called Wins All Australia News. So what they do is they then have some regional reporters in the field and they gather all this stuff together and for an hour late at night and during the day, they'll do this and it's a um, hodgepodge of everything that's happening in regional Australia. So one minute you're watching a story in Mount Gambia, the next there's a bit on Cairns Council. It's kind of all over the shop. And what time did you say? So it's late night for an hour? It, it comes on late at night and then they repeat it the next day. But one of the worst things that they do is that sometimes they're repeating the Friday news during the day on Monday. So, for example, one time a plane crashed in Port Macquarie on the Friday. So that Friday night, the news update said a plane has crashed at Port Macquarie Airport. When I was watching TV on the Monday and watching Dr Phil or something, up came the news and they said a plane has crashed at Port Macquarie. And I was like, what again? We just had one a couple of days ago. That laziness to just repeat Friday's news and not even give a fuck that it's three days old. Gee whiz. Um. What about the future of Studio 10, the future of the project? I mean, uh, do, do we think they, would they be making money off Studio 10 with a slightly lower cost base? There's still going to be a fair few costs. And what about the project, David? Well, look, I think I was surprised. Uh, I mean, I think we should be uh, surprised that, that, that Studio 10 is staying at all because it can't survive on its audience numbers at the moment. So, therefore, that says to me that the advertorials must be paying its way. Now, through COVID, we know that a lot of the advertorial business took a, a real hit. Maybe that's come back for them. But I think the fact that they're keeping the show says to me that it's that those, those advertorials are working for them. Um, people must be... Buying the stuff? I don't know. Um, so, but but clearly, it's you know, it's it's a top-heavy cast. Um, I, my understanding is, of course, the, you know, that not everybody's on the same rates, and that people like both the Denises, Denise Scott and Denise Drysdale, are basically now contributors. So they're not on the same sort of salaried positions that, you know, Sarah Harris, Kerry-Ann and Joe would be. You know, we look to uh, to, to Angela Bishop um, remaining because she can be, she does more for 10. She's across 10 news. So, therefore, that I think helped her um, stay. Um, and maybe that's why Norelda has stayed and Natasha Belling has not. Um, so, yeah, they've, they've got to cut the, they've cut the costs with the show. To me it says, well, we're keeping Sarah Harris because she's the anchor of the show and we're keeping the other uh, people being Angela and Natasha and John O'Coleman because what they do can be aggregated across various things. But that raises questions about Kerry-Ann's salary and Joe Hildebrand's salary. That's, the, that's my reading of it, whether that's correct or not. You can decide. <laughs> well, John, well, Jonathan Coleman can't be used across them because Jonathan Coleman's there to do the advertorials. Yeah, but he pays his way is what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's the most important thing about the show. And also don't forget that when Studio 10 started, it was two and a half hours long. It's now four hours yeah. long. And that's all about dragging in as much revenue from those ad breaks and advertorials as they possibly can. And what's been going on over the last seven years it's been on air is that the show's been getting longer, the pay packets have been going up for the on-air talent, but there's been less staff making the show. So, you know, at a certain point, something has to give. And clearly the show is making money, but it's also running for four hours every yeah. morning. And you don't have to watch that show for long, particularly when you start getting to the end of the week, to see that the hosts of that show 
are bored out of their minds. And I would be too. You would be. You're sitting there for four hours. That is just too long to have the same group of people doing a show that's meant to be snappy and fun and up. They're exhausted by the end of it every day. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's very demanding on the presenters. It's very demanding on the audience. Um, I presume nobody's sitting there watching the entire show, that it's a drop-in, drop-out. It's become rolling television. I mean, they, they, you know, they refer to it internally as the telephone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, David, you, I think, wrote a defence or an explanation of um, what the project does for TEN. Yeah, so there'd been, you know, there's obviously been a lot of media media articles in the last 48 hours, um, quite a few <clears throat> wondering why the project didn't um, undergo any cuts, any staff leaving. It even crossed my mind. So I looked into it. And, of course, you know, we forget that um, the show is not part of the news department. So it falls under Sarah Thornton's brief. She is looking after the factual shows that are on 10. There are a few other factual shows that are on 10 if you look over a calendar calendar year. Um, so it's, and it's also, and this is really important, it's produced externally. It's produced by roving enterprises. So that has a set budget for the year. Uh, you, you know, you're obviously going to have talent there, some talent there who are on a network deal, um, you know, such as your Wileeds and your Carries and Carrie Bickmores, etc. But then the rest, the, the majority of the people who work on that show are paid through the budgets of roving enterprises. So, and it's actually, and this was also pointed out to me, that it's actually been having a good year. Mm-hmm. And that's, most news bulletins have been right because we've had COVID and bushfires. So the numbers have been up. The I'm told that everything except the last two weeks of the show are already booked with ads. So, again, it's a show that pays its way. Um, it does work as much as people like to criticise the project. It does work with the demos with the, for 10. Um, and it also, you know, this has been said a lot over the years, is that it's the show that 10 feels best represents who they are and what they stand for. The fact that it speaks to a young audience with news in a snappy kind of way and that it's putting mostly positive stories through through what they produce and also what what you know you're absolutely right the project does not fall under 10 news and, and really has nothing to do with the announcement this week but what would 10 put in that place anyway if they got rid of the project we've all seen how much trouble they had filling the 6pm slot. You know, Grant Denyer quiz shows didn't work, so they just made 10 news at 5 go for 90 minutes instead of an hour. You know, it's also, you know, they've, 10 has had such trouble with that pre-7.30 time slot for so many years, you know, that, that they put so much work into the project, they, they want it to stay there because they don't know what to replace it with. Having said that, I mean, I agree with all what you've just said, Andrew, but having said that, um, they do draw on the resources of 10 News, right? Um, I remember going in there last year and sitting in on the, you know, the, I was allowed to sort of have a, a peek behind the scenes, which was terrific. But what, uh, during, that, uh, during that day, there was a, uh, in the middle of the afternoon or maybe about one o'clock or something, the project team sat in on a hookup phone conference around all the news um, newsrooms around the country on 10 to share their ideas, share their resources so they could talk about what, what are you going to have in your show, what could we put in ours. Every time they cross to do a, uh, for instance, a live uh, 10 news reporter somewhere, if there's a breaking news story and they want to cross to them, um, that draws upon the news trucks, the links and the resources that they use. So, you know, I think that... Um, if 10 News feels like, well, we're propping up this show through our resources, our staff, our time management, then maybe that's a political discussion that they all need to have internally. Um, but, yeah, the, you know, the project really could not deliver news differently without 10 News. Yeah. yeah. So I would say, though, that some of those trucks might already be there for 10 News at 5, so it's just a matter of keeping them around sometimes in the same place. 
But I think the really sad thing about this is that it exposes this growing gulf in Australia. You know, the Daily Mail sort of went with this story of, you know, the lefty project survives while Kerri-Anne has been so outspoken she's to be silenced. So I went on to the Daily Telegraph, the News Limited's reporting of that, and had a look at their viewer comments. And I looked at hundreds of comments from viewers who were saying ridiculous things like, 10 is now owned by anti-Trump CBS and they need to silence Kerri-Anne and going off their nut that this is all about silencing uh, right-wing voices. And it's like, wow, none of you guys have watched the show because I watch Studio 10 and it's not like Kerri-Anne's the only, you know, person, you know, except Angela Bishop and Sarah Harris, you know, share a lot of Kerri-Anne's views. So that is a ridiculous conspiracy theory. And I, you know, I just don't understand how it automatically turned into this right-wing, left-wing thing. 250 people got sacked. Kerri-Anne wasn't the only one. It's uh, 250 people got sacked. There was no conspiracy going on there to silence her. Well, look, it's an easy, it's an easy uh, story just to talk about, uh, you know, Lisa Wilkinson's salary and say, well, why is she still there when the show is, is getting, you know, whatever number that they're getting on a Friday night? But, you know, that Sunday project has been going really strong numbers this year. Yeah, okay, well, let's move on. But just say, like, let's look at last night's figures. That's Wednesday um, Wednesday night because we're recording this on a Thursday. Under under 40, the project was the third most watched show nationally behind The Bachelor and Seven News. So yeah. it, it earns its way for advertisers wanting a, a younger audience, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's a big week at 10. They've called this, I think they, was the promo the biggest week of the year when they launched both The Masked Singer and The Bachelor. It's sort of gone according to plan, but the numbers for both so far, we've had two Masked Singers and we've had one The Bachelor. They both launched with lower audiences than they had last year, but competitively they've stood up relatively well against what else was on, especially the second night of The Masked Singer when it had a bit of a free run at 7.30. Interesting, James, that they decided to keep the Masked Singer now on Mondays and Tuesdays because it was supposed to move to Sundays and Mondays, which would have been a lot more competitive. Mm. So um, it, they've decided to uh, to stick with the Monday, Tuesdays, which will be easy for the audience. Um, I think the Masked Singer um, this year is... Um, well produced in its in its you know they've had they've had to deal with a lot right mm. have to move to Melbourne they've got no audience they've had to keep the There's judges apart with yeah. partitions and things um, I I I really like I mean apart from the fact that Tim Chappell's costumes are just sensational. You know, there's yeah. no, no, no Tim Chapel, no show as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he does a great job with all of that. And, it, you know, it brings that whole sense of, well, this is a bit of fun, it's a bit silly and we're allowed to be, right? Let's revel in, in that. So I love that they've tackled this audience problem with these teddy bears and clowns and pandas down the front. I think that's just a brilliant Solution. I agree. I think they've done a really, really good job keeping the fun factor up there and getting around COVID restrictions. I agree. Masked Singer's been doing great. Yeah. Um, it's good they got Michael Bevan out of the way early because, you know, who's Michael Bevan? But I'm, I'm guessing there was some, there's been some good guesses about those female singers and they all sound really good. So, you know, I, I think they're probably pretty accurate. There's some really good vocalists amongst the women, which will Who do you be think they are, James? Well, it's, um, well, Sophie Monk seems to be one of them. So, so the thought is. Um, and the one like, that was the, um, the 2000 Olympics, oh, I reckon, is Christine Arnu. Yeah, Christine Arnu. Who, who represented us in the last Eurovision? Um, Kate Miller Heidke. I think yeah, Kate Miller Heidke is probably one of them. So. And I'm a big fan of her. She sounds great. So, yeah, I think there's some really good singers there this year. You can put money on uh, Eddie Perfect for the frill neck. Okay. I've yep. worked with Eddie and I know his singing voice. Right. That's Eddie's singing voice. 
Yeah. And if you also look to the clues, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into this now, but <laughs> if you look at the clues, um, it said um, he doesn't work nine to five. He was supposed to be in the Australian production of nine to five. He's uh, known for his outspoken LGBT um, comments. That's Eddie Perfect. Uh, and he loves to put on a show. So he's in there. Um, who else was there? Is the Zach Efron there? He does live at Byron Bay these days, and I thought one of them sounded a bit like him. I'm going with Isaiah uh, Firebrace for The Wizard. Okay. Because when you hear the ad and, you, and it's sort of devoid of, of all the uh, applause and uh, all that sort of stuff, it, to me it was a lot clearer and I thought that's Isaiah's voice. And also in the magician clips he was exploding all the time. I thought, well, there's the fire. So that would be my tip. But I didn't know who Michael Bevan was when... I still don't know who Michael Bevan is. No idea. Never heard of him before. Oh, I'm sorry. And the clue about Kylie, how the are we supposed to know what you've passed Kylie in a hallway in a hotel somewhere? <laughs> I mean, is that... No, but seriously, if the, is that written up somewhere? Because if that clue's not out there in the... If that's not out there in the public domain, maybe it is. I don't know. But I'd sort of, if, if even Kylie's own sister cannot pick that clue, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> now, David, um, Andrew and I are both in New South Wales and we're hanging on, hopefully, there won't be sort of a, a second spike in the um, COVID figures. You're down in Melbourne doing the best you can in, an, in another lockdown. Um, the TV ratings, you look at those every day. Are they showing any, do they go up when things go into lockdown? Uh, they go up when Daniel Andrews does a news conference mm. on the weekends. Um, yeah, look, I'm surprised. I thought, because the, the, for those who don't know, the curfew is 8 o'clock, still in place and going to be in place for a few more weeks yet. <sighs> um, so I was surprised to see that the numbers are not really shifting. Melbourne is traditionally the biggest TV audience. Mm. Um, so when you've got, dare I say it, a captive audience um, in cold weather who can't go outdoors, you know, you can't step outside your property, uh, I thought those numbers would have gone up. Now, they haven't really, not significantly. The news has been doing well and there are shows here and there that have, you know, done good numbers like Ninja Warrior and Farmer I think has done pretty well, etc. But we're, we're certainly not seeing much shift. To me, that says two things. One was, one is that uh, obviously the streaming is <laughs> starting really early now. People looking at streaming from, I don't know, six o'clock onwards, I guess. But also the other thing, and I had forgotten this, the AFL. So even though the AFL is not on seven every night, it is on Fox footy every night, right? You'd know more about that than me, James. But um, so I've seen that Fox Footy has been doing very, you know, doing good figures in subscription. Yeah, a couple hundred thousand, um, close to every night. There's a footy match on. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I'd be interested to get an Oztam answer on this too. But presumably they don't put boxes in casual viewing households because they're not watching much TV. I I don't know. But um, so maybe you're not you're not sort of measuring the, the infrequent viewer who might be there during a, a curfew? Yeah, look, ransomware aside, <laughs> um, we have to assume that those boxes are not really shifting at this time, certainly not yeah. in Melbourne because mm. it's just mm. too dangerous to do that. Sure. So they're staying, whoever's got them has yeah. still got them and they're staying put. Yeah, yeah, but I mean to qualify for a set-top box, you presumably have to be watching a certain amount of TV Otherwise, there's no point in maybe putting a box in there. Yeah. And so the casual viewer mightn't be cropping up in the figures. I'm not sure. Okay. okay. I'm not sure. Let's go on to some shows. There's some good stuff around. Um, White House Farm is something I think Andrew and I mentioned it a couple of um, podcasts ago. I finally just start, I tuned into it. I only started last night and I've already gone through the first few episodes. Gee whiz, after that first one, you really want to see what happens in the next one. And it's, um, it's just amazingly produced. It's the, the it is, again, it's like watching a movie. The, um, the attention to detail in that first episode, 
the setup of a lot of those outdoor shots, the quality of the cast, the suspense, because it's I think everybody knows it's about a mass murder. That's not a spoiler. Uh, it's based on true events. So the suspense of what you're going to, what the camera will show you in that first episode is um, quite amazing. When the first episode finished, I couldn't believe it was over. It felt like it only went for 20 minutes, but it had clearly gone for 45 or 50 minutes. So it's on BBC First. Uh, amazing cast. Good to see Mark Addy again after he broke big in the Big Monty all those years ago and once played Fred Flintstone in the Viva Las Vegas movie of the Flintstones, whatever. And Stephen Graham in there. And I know, David, he you're a big fan of Line of Duty, which he's in. Yep. And I love, I love him in This Is England, which has been a series of miniseries. And I think This Is England's on stand to watch now. Outstanding TV um, set back in the late 80s, early 90s, and he played a really key character in that, a guy with violent tendencies. He's an amazing actor. Yeah, and just right. just on that cast, Freddie Fox is the, um, is the sort of dodgy-looking brother. He's, he's excellent. Um, Alexa Davies is great. And one of my favourite actresses, I think Gemma Whelan, who um, plays... Um, the the sister's role in um I can't remember what it was now um, my um Jack what's it called um, Gentleman Jack Gentleman Jack right she's the sister in Gentleman Jack and she um was one of the Greyjoys in um Game of Thrones ah and her was it her brother Theon Greyjoy in Game of Thrones is actually also turns up in this Alfie Allen so it's um some great great cast members. Nice. See, I'll be watching this one through to the end for sure. I'm hooked. I haven't seen White House Farm, which is remiss of me. I know it's on Fox Talent and on Binge, right? Yeah. Um, what I can tell you is it's written by an Aussie. Oh, really? Uh, or co-written by an Aussie, um, whose name is Chris Merkser. And uh, I studied screenwriting with Chris um, back in the old RMIT days. Uh, he was one of the, the cluey guys in the class. Um, <clears throat> he uh, he went on to do quite a few good things. So he's most he, he, the other UK one that he recently did was called Requiem, which I think was a supernatural series, which was produced and commissioned by the BBC, if I'm not mistaken. But he's also written on Glitch, Time of Our Lives, Janet King, The Slap. Um, so, you know, well done to Chris um, and I shall have to get on to seeing White House Farm. A couple of things that are coming back finally. It's um, Last Tango in Halifax, which hasn't been on for a while. I think there's four eps in the new season. It starts this coming weekend. And then I think in September they're getting around ABC, both, both on the ABC, the second series of The Split with um, Nicola Walker. Nicola Walker's actually in both of those. That was shown back in February in the UK. Is there any reason, David, the ABC takes their time putting some of these British shows uh, to air? And I, I don't think there was any holdback because of um, Foxtel screening either of these. Yeah, I think they're screening those both exclusives, right? So I don't know why, you know, when they fast-track Killing Eve, um, why they're um, holding back on those. Is it, is it about the slots? But Killing Eve's one of those shows that people get on Twitter and talk about. You don't see a lot of people talking Last Tango in Halifax because I think that show skews a little bit older. I think they kind of go, oh, you know, we, we, there's not a huge necessity of that. And that's not taking anything away from the fans of Last Tango in Halifax. I think it's a beautiful, non-ageist, beautifully written show by Sally Wine, Wainwright who, yep. of course, is the creator of Happy Valley and Gentleman yep. Jack. And uh, I've watched the first two episodes of this series of Last Tango in Halifax. I watched one and I loved it so much, I just rolled straight into the second episode. And, and I didn't really watch it when it started all those years ago. But one of the lines in it that I really love is that the lead characters played by... Uh, Derek Jacoby and Anne Reid, and they're an older couple that get married in their 70s. They've now been married for seven years in the show, but they're having a problem in their marriage. And guess what the disagreement stems from? They couldn't agree on Brexit. How brilliant is that? 
Oh, it's great to have Sarah Lancashire back on the screen. She she hasn't been making a real lot lately. Well, she was in Mother, Father, Son. Yeah. She's done those series of Happy Valley and she's in Last Tango in Halifax. And I, I looked up on Wikipedia today that Sally Wainwright says that they're in development for a third series of Happy Valley. And interestingly, I saw Sarah Lancashire, if you go to Foxtel... They've got these fantastic uh, Coronation Street specials that are kind of best of compilations, which they've had to put together during the production shutdown in the UK. And of course, Sarah Lancashire started in Coronation Street. For years and years, she played this hilariously ditzy character called Raquel, who's a bit like Marilyn in Home and Away. And you see some of her stuff in that. And that's where Sarah Lancashire got her name, was in Corrie. I think, um, think she was in the accident recently as well about the, um, was it the Welsh mining village? And that, that has the most amazing first episode where this, this eruption or uh, whatever happens just engulfs this town. Wow, okay, I'll have to watch that now because I have seen that there and I've seen that she's in the promo. I think Sarah Lancashire is magnificent. I'll pretty much watch anything she's in. Yeah, yeah she's good. Same, absolutely. Well, just while you're mentioning those um, UK ones that are coming up, of course, they're also SBS. We're also getting the Salisbury Poisonings coming up, which they're going... This is interesting, Andrew. They're going to screen this at 8.30 for four nights in a row wow. as a lead into Hungry Ghosts. What's wow. interesting about that is in Hungry Ghosts, the local drama gets the 9.30 slot, not the 8.30. I don't know. I don't know. They've, they've, they have done that before with that. What was that Rachel Griffiths one that they had, uh, the, the police show that oh, SBS yes. did? Yes, and she had a... An Asian young yeah, so that I remember that got a nine thirty slot. Um, so they've decided to, to do that again. With uh, hungry ghost is being well, it's basically horror, isn't it? It's a, a genre we don't do very often in Australian TV. It's a uh, Vietnamese ghost story. Yeah. Um, do they think that maybe people? You know, a, a Viceland audience, for example, would think more of watching a horror show at 9.30 at night. That would somehow make it scarier than 8.30. I don't I know. Think, well, I think they're doing it so that the show doesn't get smothered by the reality shows that are on, yeah. on the commercial networks. I can't yeah. wait to see Hungry Ghosts. I cannot wait. I went to... Oh, I, did a set, I did a set visit for Hungry Ghosts and got a couple of interviews that, that are in the can that I'm ready to... To, you know, roll out for this. Um, but I haven't seen any of the episodes yet, so I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I, think I, I don't know that it's horror. Sorry, James. I don't know that it's horror. I think it's supernatural with a cultural... Supernatural. Yeah, you know, ghosts. Yeah. Sorry, it is, yeah. But it looks scary. I say horror because it looks freaking scary. Really good cast too. Was that SBS series Dead Lucky? No? Yeah. Rachel yeah. Griffiths. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, I th SBS does a few clever things with that 9.30 slot, though. Um, I think um, Vikings, they ran it there for a while at 9.30. And it, oh, um, oh, the, oh, gee, I'm, my memory's going today. What's the... Um, well, I'm watching War of the Worlds at the moment, which is 9.30 on Thursdays. Is that yeah, what's, what's the US the dystopian future? What's that series? Um, oh, Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I think that goes out at 9.30 as well. Yeah. I think they'd like doing little things like that because it maybe bumps up the average for that so they can talk about, you know, growing their audience. And it's all very well because we know free-to-air TV is a wasteland after after eight, after 9.30, so SBS can maybe cleverly pick up some audience there. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else is uh, coming through? The um, There's something now, I'll be gone in the dark has been oh. Big promotion from um, Foxtel really pushing that now. Now it's a Foxtel doco. I don't know a lot of uh, HBO doco. I don't know a lot about it. I sure do. I've seen the whole season. Wow. Right. You watched it all already. Wow. I've got to tell you, I was in a vortex <laughs> watching this show. It's one of the, it's a true crime doco. Um, it's one of the few shows where I've done a review based on 
you know, I think two episodes on this occasion. That can vary sometimes depending on what the show is. But now that I've seen the whole season, I want to go back and re-review it and bump up my rating. Um, look, it's full on. It's uh, So it's a HBO doco series. We're talk- we're, in case you missed the title, we're talking about um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark is the name of it. I had to think there for a minute. Um, it's based on a the, the hunt for a rapist and a murderer who was in the US who was doing these rape sprees and then got that extended to become murder in California in the 1970s and into the 80s. Um, And he was prolific. There were 50 rapes going on in Sacramento and these other areas around California. He did move from time to time um, that they just could not get to the bottom of who this guy was breaking into homes tying up women uh, no tying up their husbands if they were in the that the, the house at the same time raping the women hanging around in the house eating food from the kitchens of uh, just all this bizarre so there were there were signs that this was the same person is what i'm saying anyway the doco is told from the perspective of a woman by the name of Michelle McNamara who is a true crime um, freak doing a, uh, not so much podcast, she was a writer, she's an author. And she was hooked on this case, this mystery case, and we're talking about in recent years, right? As it turns out, Michelle McNamara is the wife of actor Patton Oswalt. But she's a writer in her own right, and so she basically was looking at this cold case. But the more this, and I'll make it, I'll try to make it brief now, (laughs) but the more this doco goes on, I think it's six parts, the more it becomes about how her hunt for this killer impacted on Michelle McNamara. And I don't think it's a spoiler for me to say, because it's in the press release anyway, for me to say that she accidentally overdosed while she was, so it enveloped her so much she had to, pop the pills to stay awake, to get to the bottom of this case. The book has become a bestseller. The documentary, as I say, is, is, is quite riveting. It's very, for a minute there, I thought I was watching true crime porn. It was so graphic. But that was really getting to me, but I just had to see this through. How many episodes? So it's six. It's on um, Foxtel and Binge. So the Fox Showcase, I think, or you can stream it through there on demand. It's, it's, if you like the making of murderers and the, I'm not going to, well, I, I can't really liken it to Tiger King because it's, it, it's not, not mental yeah. like that was, right? But if you love to see how a, a true crime is solved, um, yeah, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's no spoiler explaining Michelle has passed away because I think um, her husband at the very start of the series references it when he's yeah. doing a book, a book signing for, for his wife's sort of posthumous. Uh, yeah, it's very emotional in that, in that sense too. Um, he, yeah, I won't say too much more. Yeah. Okay, okay. A um, few changes at uh, Foxtel, uh, David. Um, Brian Walsh been giving a sort of a wider remit over all Australian productions, if you like, but maybe stepping back from a, a complete sort of entertainment um, I guess, director of TV role that he used to have. Yeah, look, I haven't spoken to him because this only uh, came out yesterday um, and it's his movie is part of a number of, of moves that Patrick Delaney has done. What they, it, The way it was explained to me was um, that the restructure is um, basically having three <laughs> dining rooms was the, was the an- analogy uh, with one kitchen. So the three dining rooms being Foxtel slash Foxtel Now, KO is another one and Binge is another one. Content, platforms, they vary, right? But it's all being driven from, as they say, the kitchen, which is the, the commissioning stage and the, the deals stage. So Amanda Lang, who was been, been at Foxtel Now for about two years, I think, previously from nine, very good um, operator. She's now oversees um, the, the television the commissioning, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so Brian, who, as you say, was uh, executive director of television, now moves to this new division that they've, 
they've established being Foxtel originals. And so he will now commission, he gets to focus now purely on commissioning Australian drama, Australian lifestyle, Australian, I'm not going to say comedy because they really don't do much comedy, right? Uh, everything but sport that is locally produced. And I think that's what Brian loves. I did speak to him a year ago and in an interview, <laughs> I randomly said to him, Brian, what's your future? Do you, you know, you've been with Foxtel now for 20 plus years, uh, ever since it started, right? Where do you see yourself? And he said to me, where's this question coming from, Dave? And I said, no, no, just a random question. So he said, no, look, I still love the business. I still love telling stories and still a lot more in me. And he said he loves to work around the younger people that keep him energised as well. Yeah, yeah, the... Um yeah, I've had similar chats with him too, probably, and he's talked about, look, he's been putting feelers out for, he's been wanting um, series. He's been going to the production houses saying, look, we want to find um, long-running series that, that, will, um, that will do a good job over a number of years. I, but I get the feeling he hasn't got any money yet to sort of finalise the deals. And I've got a feeling there mightn't be any money for a little while. So I think he's beginning to be sort of getting his ducks in a row, if you like, for when Foxtel say, okay, now we can start investing. And I'm not sure if that will be this year. Hopefully it will be next year. when Because they've been, and we've talked about this before, Andrew, I think that there hasn't been a lot of recent drama. What they have commissioned over the last couple of years has been generally pretty good. Um, yeah. Very impressive. But it's been a little bit light on. Well, it's been, they've been doing things like Picnic and Hanging Rock and the Kettering Incident and Lambs of God, which are very short-term things. But you're right, Brian needs that. He needs the next A Place to Call Home. Yeah. And then it Wentworth, which is uh, meant to be finishing up next year because ultimately, you know, they're getting, how, how many seasons are they going to get out of Wentworth? They're going to get nine years of it. That's what they want. They want that kind of headline-grabbing Australian drama that, you know, can bring subscribers. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's plenty getting made out there in the production sector, though, because we've seen some some big um, lists of sort of uh, development money coming from uh, Screen New South Wales and Screen Australia, both in the last couple of weeks. A lot of projects. There's, um, I just wonder if any of them have caught the eye of either of you. Like one I'll mention from um, Screen New South Wales, uh, some money going to uh, John and Dan Edwards, uh, who run Rough Diamond. I think it's part owned by Roadshow. As I, they, uh, John's worked a lot with Claudia Carvin over the years. There's a new Claudia Carvin project there. They haven't mentioned the name of the, that yet, so it hasn't officially been announced. So I'm sort of looking forward to that. And they're developing a project with Kate McClyman too on um, on sort of some of um, the sort of dodgy goings on in uh, New South Polit New South Wales politics. Is that, that, sorry, is that, a, is that a doco? Um, I think it will be. Yeah, that she covers very well for the Sydney Morning Herald. So yep. it'd be sort of fascinating to see what uh, becomes of that. From the Screen Australia list, I was very interested in Shakespeare Now, which seems a very ambitious project. I think they're going to be doing at least um, eight adaptions of Shakespeare plays. And it's going to be developed by uh, Margot Robbie's company in association with Hoodlum. Mm. So that sounds like it's going to be fascinating. That one's been an, uh, around for quite a while in terms of um, talk about this is coming. So, but, but clearly getting closer now to, to production, hopefully yep. when COVID allows. Um, I noticed also um, Lee Sale's name mm. um, with um, CJZ. That caught my eye um, and she told me that they had, no, sorry, not CJZ, I beg your pardon, uh, Jungle. Uh, oh. Jungle have optioned, and she told me that uh, Jungle have optioned her book called An Ordinary Day, which is about uh, stories of resilience. So when you're going through an, an ordinary day, something big happens and how do you cope and how do you adjust with that? So, um, but she told me that would be a docker. 
So, uh, you know, but I mean, it's, yeah, it's great to see all these um, projects being greenlit. We should qualify or quantify that not all of these are likely to to reach screen. These are, these are development funding, but um, you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. I noticed on the Screen Australia list that a few of the shows seem to be covering the same turf. You have Find Me, which is about a sickness that sweeps Australia, interesting in the pandemic age. Another show called Sickos, which is about an alien sickness sweeping the world. And then you get to Over and Out, which is a pilot from Christian Van Vuren about a couple bringing up kids in a post-apocalyptic world, which is kind of similar to a skit they were doing, I thought, maybe on At Home Alone Together because he was doing that kind of, you know, young family with two kids uh, stuff there. So, yeah, I I noticed a bit of a trend there. Well, Kath and Kim started as a skit, so... True. Anything's possible. One of the projects that has been around for a while, I think, is the Sapphire's animation um, idea. I, I just saw that on a list earlier today from, I think it was three or four years ago when that, that first popped up as, a, as an idea. And did you notice, James, we've done a, we did a podcast with Rosemary Bright about I Am Woman, which is now streaming on Stan. And we recorded that a few weeks ago. And in that podcast, we kind of tried to squeeze out of her what was going on with some sort of sequel for Top End Wedding and she was, you know, sort of saying, oh, yeah, you might hear something along. And, of course, there it was. It came out in this uh, Screen Australia list. They're going to turn Top End Wedding into a series. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. But um, we should mention um, I Am Woman that's... um, that um, thanks for mentioning the podcast, Andrew. That's out there now. I think it's about two weeks till the uh, movie drops on on Stan. Um, been getting a bit of publicity, but because it's on Stan, I think in the next two weeks we'll see a bit of a blitz both on Nine and in Nine newspapers. We'll be all over this. I think this this is going to be pretty big by the time it finally makes it um, onto the platform. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I put something up about it on my personal Facebook page and, you know, I had some, some friends of mine and their daughters went, oh, my God, I just found out who Helen Reddy is. Oh, this looks amazing. So, yeah, I hope it works well with uh, a whole couple of generations in the same families. I think Tilda Cobbin Harvey, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah. I think she's the, the best thing in it, I thought, apart from Helen's. I mean, Helen Reddy's music, once you sort of relive it again, hear it again. It's just, it's just so wonderful. The, movie, the movie's okay, I thought, as a, as a bio. Tough crowd. <laughs> Danielle McDonald was great, though, wasn't she, as Nicola Roxon, yeah. is it? As um, the- Lillian Roxon. Lillian Roxon. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. Great. We talked about the fact that I, I didn't know who she was. I'm so thrilled that I know who she was now because of I Am Woman. And a surprise appearance from Jordan Raxcopoulos, which I won't ruin. Yes. That was terrific. Yes. You know, just and some of the stuff um, that we found out about the production, you know, um, how they duplicated the Washington Mall by some cleverly produced scenes in Centennial Park, how um, how Carnegie Hall, they sort of dummied up uh, the Enmore Theatre to resemble um, Carnegie Hall. So I, I think they've done a great job and I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I, I really am ready to watch it again, actually. And so, James, yeah. you didn't feel that um, leaving out Ray Burton as songwriter for I Am Woman was problematic? Well, they, it's not as if they, they, they just they didn't reference it, I guess. I mean, it's not about who wrote that song. It's about the person who sang it. It's her life story. Okay, it's her most famous single piece of um, music, I guess. Um, and you know what? Every single biopic that gets made, uh, schmushes, so t- has to take some stuff out of there. No biopic ever tells that the interest. That that's a documentary. If you're going to repeat everything a hundred percent, you know, every biopic takes some dramatic license and uh, pushes two or three characters into one character to represent that. You know, that I just took that as part of dramatic storytelling for a biopic. Okay. 
Yeah, and I mean, so he, he's gotten proper credit though, hasn't he, for the publishing. So, I mean, this song's going to do a lot of business. He's going to get a lot more money in his royalties now, you know. So he should. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not saying that, but I mean, there, there's not many famous songwriters around is what I'm saying, you know. There's, um, you know, it's usually about the singer. The songwriter doesn't often get profiled or... I, I, look, I just thought, well, why why not have him in there if, uh, if this is such a pivotal point in her life? It, it, what would it have been, one act or two scenes just where they meet and where they come up with the idea and create the song? I just thought, I, I just didn't really understand why, if we're looking at all the pivotal points in her life, why that was not considered important. But, I mean, I'm sure he's in the credits. Well, I don't think they've said it's not important, but like Andrew said, they can't fit everything in. I mean, I'm interested in what happened to Helen after the movie stops, but they, they couldn't do everything. They had to stop it somewhere. A lot of stuff went on, you know, later in life. You know. I believe now she's um, in a, a home in the US. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, look, her voice in those songs. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Cassie McCulloch who's the singer, um, a singer from Perth they found. And it, um, and in our podcast um, uh, there's an explanation of, you know, how they found her and um, why they chose her to do the... Because some of Helen's original music's in there. And they tell the story that Jeff Wald, when he watched the movie, who was Helen's um, long-time husband and also her manager... Um, yep didn't realise it wasn't Helen singing in, in that. That's not for every song, though, is it? No. Only where you see her singing on screen. Only okay. when um, the actress is singing. Okay. Helen, yeah. But no, it's good stuff. Look, anything you want to recommend uh, as we wrap this up by coming in the next... Andrew, what's in your column tomorrow in Media Week? Um, I'll, I'll talk about 10 News and Last Tango in Halifax. Um, I'll also, my tip is I saw an ad just before on Nine um, for Nine Now. They're adding a whole bunch of new Australian drama classics there. Stingers, the original series of Sea Changes made on the ABC, and all of Halifax is there because, of course, in a few weeks' time we're going to get a brand-new Halifax with Rebecca Gibney. And you know what? I see ads also on Channel 7 for all the drama content they've got. They keep adding more and more seasons of A Country Practice. It's right up there on their homepage. Clearly, Australian nostalgia is doing well during the pandemic and I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah. What about you, David? Anything you want to leave us with? Um... Well, the sound. What, what's the sound? You used to be a big Countdown fan. Can the sound build an audience and, and get a regular spot in the ABC schedule? I, look, I haven't seen much of the sound, but what I've seen I've really, really liked. I just thought it was a, a fresh um, and well-presented way of introducing us to new new acts, or a lot of them are new to me. It's You know, it's new with old in there, and I just think the way that they've put it together with having a you know, a, a rotating host has been has been clever. Um, it's finishing up. There's only two more episodes to go because there's only six episodes. The numbers have not been great. I don't think I don't know how much promotion it's been given. Mm. And five thirty on a Sunday, okay, that's that's tough. not really you know that's that's a, a tough slot in terms of trying to get people to to watch. But yeah. I, I I was encouraged by it. you know when we think about the sound versus what was the other one they had the set. It, which was also quite well done. It was good and the sound's been good too, yeah. Yeah. So fingers crossed they can bring that back. We're going with Australian Remastered in that slot at the end of August, right, which is, you know, an idea of opening up the uh, the vaults of all their natural history and sort of re uh, remastering it and getting Aaron Pedersen to introduce it. So sure. that might do well. Um, it's about creating a habit, isn't it, Andrew, for... Yeah, I don't, I don't, what, what happened, what screens at 6.30 on the ABC that they couldn't have put this one-hour music show into the old countdown time slot and run it from 6 to 7 p.m.? I mean, if they want a music show to work on a Sunday night and say, we want to bring back countdown, don't screen it at 5.30 to 6.30, halfway between news bulletins. Go 6 to 7 p.m. and make that a slot for Australian music. I don't understand why they won't do that. 
compasses on it, 630. Compasses on. Yeah. Okay, the compass is important, but, you know, I think Australian music's really important too. And Compass is now finished because they've finished their run as well. So right. I with a, there you go. Put the flash on and a music show from 6 to 7 p.m. immediately before the 7 p.m. news. I, I think there was a clash because they wanted to get these, this music on air during COVID. That's why it didn't, didn't uh, wait. But it was produced by Saul Stein, right, James? Correct, yeah, yep. Ex-sports Ex- sports at Channel 7. Yeah, well, MTV launched MTV online. Yeah, right. He had Mark Fennessy was working for him and when he got up and running, he left Mark to do um, keep that going and Saul went back to sport. So there you go. All right, great. Great to see you both. Um, stay well down there in uh, Melbourne, David. Always good to see you, Andrew, and we'll uh, hopefully catch up again soon. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Thanks, Andrew. See you, David.